John's uh, testimony reminds me that um, based on the parables of Jesus, the, what's sometimes called the true kingdom parables, in Matthew chapter 13, that some are surprised finders and some are serious seekers. Um, it's based on the, on the pearl of great price and the treasure buried in a field. The man stumbled on a treasure in a field. He wasn't looking for treasure. You could say the treasure discovered him. There was a pearl merchant who was searching the world over for a pearl of great value. And when he found the pearl, he went and sold all that he had that he could obtain the pearl. Uh, John was a surprised finder of the grace of God. Um, There's a sense, however, a very real sense, in which we're all surprised finders. Surprised to find a grace that's greater than all of our sin. Surprised to find a salvation that is so comprehensive in nature that gives us forgiveness of sin now, a present and abiding hope of eternal life, a salvation that someday will subdue every vestige of sin, and the Lamb in that place will be all the glory. May His name be praised forever. Fanny Crosby wrote a great hymn, didn't she? Blessed Assurance. May the Spirit of God produce that blessed assurance in all of our hearts as we consider Him who alone is worthy of our worship and our praise. Would you take your Bibles and um, open with me, please, to the parable of the Good Samaritan? You'll find it in the Gospel of Luke chapter 10. I am uh, so excited to be at Grace, and um, I'm so excited to be with you on Wednesday nights um, that, truthfully, I've almost hyperventilated on the past two Wednesday evenings. (laughs) Although, to the untrained eye, you wouldn't have noticed that. I've almost hyperventilated because I've been so excited about the parables. I've been so excited to um, share the truth of the parables um, that I've come um, on Wednesday nights with with um, fear and trembling, literally. And what I'd like to do this evening is take a few deep breaths and slow down a little bit because this is such a great parable. The parables hold such a place in history that they have... Uh, found their way into everyday speech. For example, if you hear the phrase, a wolf in sheep's clothing, you immediately recognize that someone is addressing the character of another person, that they're not what they pretend to be. If you hear um, uh, the term the prodigal, he or she is a prodigal, you recognize immediately that this person, young or old, male or female, is uh, living in a state of rebellion at the moment. You recognize the implication of that. If you hear the term Good Samaritan, immediately there is an understanding of grace and mercy poured out to someone in need. Such is the language of the parables that that we um, are somewhat familiar with them. But our familiarity could breed a certain level of contempt. And I pray that uh, the Holy Spirit opens our understanding to fresh insights and fresh applications in the Word of God, particularly as we study the parables on these Wednesday evenings in the Gospel of Luke. Christ calls us to radical commitment. He calls us to a demanding commitment. It entails adopting a whole new orientation. It entails the absolute surrender of ourselves. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus tells a would-be seeker that if you want to follow Him, that is, if you want to follow Christ, you must deny yourself And the Greek word um, means utterly, totally deny yourself. Take up the cross daily and follow me. The cross was an instrument of death. 
when one went through the streets in Jerusalem with a crossbeam strapped to his shoulders, people knew that you were on a one-way journey. It was the end of your life as you knew it. And such is the call to conversion. Such is the call to follow Christ. It's to be the end of ourselves, the end of life as we know it, the end of life as we desire to manage it and live it, and the taking up of a whole new life and a whole new life's orientation. The mercies of God and the gospel of Christ in Romans 12 lead to the presenting of ourselves as a living sacrifice. Paul and, uh, and uh, Dr. Young will resume his study in, um, in Romans, and, and I think he'll pick up at the end of uh, Romans chapter 8 about there's nothing in this life, the life to come, that will ever separate us from the love of God. But when you get to Romans chapter 12, all the great doctrines of grace lead to this application. I beg you, Paul says, in view of God's mercies in Christ, present yourselves as a living sacrifice to God. The gospel of grace calls us to flat out living under the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're no longer our own. We've been purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our bodies have become temples of the Holy Spirit. And there is a sense in which these parables confront our spiritual complacency and upset the apple cart, if you will, and confront us to new priorities and challenge our worldly perspectives and our worldly values and call us to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in fresh, dynamic, and vital ways. Christ in the parables challenges and even exposes the condition of our hearts through seemingly harmless stories that often turn or often hinge on some striking insight that lay bare our hearts before the Lord and hopefully lay bare our hearts before ourselves as well. I have to tell you that I'm really concerned about rightly interpreting the parables. But what I've discovered is that as I study the parables... They interpret me. They interpret me. And such is this parable in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25, reading through verse 27. You and I know it as the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is God's word, and may we hear it as such. Luke 10, starting in verse 25. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. In verse 28, Jesus said to him, You've answered rightly, do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him. 
Whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. So each of these three, so which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among thieves? And what would your answer be? Who was the neighbor? Say it. The Samaritan was. The Samaritan was. Do you know that the lawyer couldn't even utter the word Samaritan? Such was the hatred, such was the prejudice, such was the depth of hostility and antipathy between Jews and Samaritans. We know of almost nothing in our history that is exactly like this. The parable of the Good Samaritan is nothing if it's not provocative because it's what one would call a reverse trap. That is, Jesus pulls the lawyer in with a question, a response to his question. And the lawyer responds with a self-justification. And by the end of the parable, in verse 37, when Jesus says, Go and do likewise, the trap closes on the lawyer. The questions are falsely motivated. They're not motivated out of a sincere quest to understand how one may obtain eternal life. And the second question, who is my neighbor, is not motivated by sincerity of desiring to know who one's neighbor is. In fact, the first question is an effort to entrap Jesus, to ensnare him. The second question, who is my neighbor, is a bare attempt at self-justification to kind of lessen the standards that Jesus pressed in upon the man. And Jesus' response to the two questions does two things. Jesus exposes the utter inability of salvation by works righteousness. Paul labors that point often in Galatians and Romans. Galatians 3, Paul says, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified before God. There is absolutely no help or no hope of ever attaining acceptability with God on the basis of law-keeping. And you say, why is that? Well, the lawyer's answer gives us a hint. The lawyer says, well, my reading of the law says that we're to love God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, our soul, our being. That's what the law requires. The law requires nothing less than entire devotion and complete submission to the law of God, the law of a righteous God, a holy God, whose law calls us to perpetual and personal and perfect obedience. And I would ask you, dear one, do you love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength 24 hours a day, 365 days a year? Be careful how you answer that question. Well, if you could even pass that test, let's say, you realize that loving God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength summarizes the first four of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, the Lord says that, that you'll have no other gods before me. You'll not make any graven images. You'll not bow down and worship things that are not gods. You will not misuse my name. And you will remember the rhythm of life. There is a day set aside for rest and worship and to honor me. That loving God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength summarizes the, what's called the first tablet of the law, the first four commandments. And if we would even dare believe that we're capable of that, what about the second response of the lawyer when he says, the law also says that we're to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. How about that one? How do we do on loving our neighbor as we love ourselves? In chapter 2, the class I teach on Sunday mornings at 9.30, I made the statement Sunday that I love what 
what uh, Charlie Brown said in, uh, in the cartoon strip. I love the world. It's my neighbor that I have problems with. You know, as long as it's vague and nebulous and it's out there. The truth is that the law calls us, Leviticus 19.18, or the, the, the second tablet of the law, Commandments uh, 5 through 10, call us to love other people with the same devotion, the same intensity, the same fervency, the same joy, the same eagerness with which we love ourselves. And I have to tell you honestly that I strike out on both counts. I don't love God with an entire devotion that is blameless before the throne of heaven. I know for sure that I don't love my neighbor with the same interest, devotion, intensity, eagerness, and joy with which I love myself. And so Jesus uh, responds to the lawyer. And he says, you know, you do this and you'll live. And if the lawyer is honest, he would say to Christ, God have mercy upon me. I am a sinner because I can't do that. I can't love God with entire devotion and submission. And I certainly cannot love my neighbor as I love myself. He would have fallen before Christ and begged for mercy. That's one point of the parable is that the parable exposes our utter bankruptcy before the throne of heaven. It says that we do not have the resources by nature, by inclination, by desire to perfectly keep the law of God. The law comes in and slays us. The law of God comes in and reveals that we are sinners through and through, that we are sinners in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds, that we are sinners by, by commission, that is, we actively, willfully disobey the law of God and we're sinners by omission, that is, we fail to do what the law has called us to do. And if we really felt the weight of that, or as we feel the weight of that, I should say, we will recognize that we are completely bankrupt before God and dependent on nothing less than His mercy. As we feel the weight of that, we're compelled to fall, to fall before the Lord and to beg God for mercy. That's where Jesus started in the Beatitudes, wasn't it? Uh, knowing spiritual poverty knowing that we are bankrupt before the Lord, that we cannot muster enough resources to make ourselves commendable before God. I know that you know, Isaiah 64, 6, that all our righteousnesses, plural, is like filthy rags, that we cannot make ourselves commendable before God. That's one point of the parable is it just reveals the depth of our inability. It reveals the depth of our spiritual inability. But there's another point to be made here. And that is, in this parable, Jesus, uh, and this is the application that I'm going to give it, Jesus calls believers to an important value of the kingdom of God. And that value is mercy. He calls us to be a merciful people. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. We have received amazing mercy in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul wrote to Titus and gave him advice and insights concerning his ministry in Titus chapter 3, he reminds him and he reminds us that it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but it's by the renewing of God's Spirit. It's by the washing of the water of God's Spirit that we receive and inherit eternal life. Uh, last week, for those of you who were not here or who may be uh, have been on vacation and not sure what we're doing, or maybe you were at camp last week. Um, 
which I understand they had a great week. Um, um, so maybe you weren't here last week, but last week we looked at the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils. And in that parable, Jesus gives the timeless response to the message of the gospel. It is unerringly accurate. It is prophetically insightful. The gospel is proclaimed. It is scattered like seed in a field. And that seed falls on hardened hearts, hearts that are impervious to the things of God, who have no interest, no intention, no affection whatsoever for the things of God. The seed of the gospel is broadcast and proclaimed, and it falls in very thin soil. And underneath that soil, there is a ledge of rock. And so the response is emotional. It is superficial. It is shallow. And when persecution comes because of the word, that plant that began seemingly well withers and dies in the face of various tests. The seed of the gospel is proclaimed and falls among thorns, but it's choked by a preoccupation with self-interest. It's choked by a desire for comfort and security and pleasure, and it bears no fruit. The tests of life expose the falsity of faith. And this parable exposes the falsity of a faith that is not merciful, that does not have a merciful orientation. Because we've received mercy. If you know that you've received mercy, would you raise your hand tonight? If you know beyond a shadow of doubt you've received mercy. By the very upraised hand um, this evening, you've indicated that God has called you to be a merciful person because you've received incredible mercy. And that's the point that I want to make out of this parable this evening. You, If you've been at Grace in any length of time, if you've taken uh, Dr. Young's systematic class, you know about spiritual bankruptcy and poverty and being unable to commend yourself and make yourself savable to a holy God. He's done that in the person work of the Lord Jesus Christ. What I really want to press upon us for just a few minutes this evening is the call to be merciful. There is in this text, I think, a very clear call to mercy. It begins in the context in verse 30 of a man who's traveling the Jericho Road. Uh, He went down to Jericho, and he literally went down to Jericho. Jerusalem's about 2,700 feet above sea level, and Jericho's about 800 feet below sea level, so he literally went down. It's about 17 miles. And in the context of Jesus' parable, when he told this parable, it would have been a limestone, craggy, a rocky, rough road to travel from Jerusalem to Jericho. But this man made the trip, and while he was traveling there, he fell among thieves. That's what the text says. He was beaten. He was stripped of his clothing. In other words, he was robbed, and he was left for dead. Jesus in the parable says that there's one who comes along and sees the man, and he's identified as a priest. He would have been a descendant of Aaron. He would have been a part of a spiritually elite group in Jerusalem. He would have handled the sacrifices in Jerusalem. He would have been a part of a worship that endeavored to honor the Lord God as He had revealed Himself to Israel in the Old Testament. And He came by and He saw the man lying there bloodied, beaten, stripped, bare, robbed, and dying. And what does the text say that He does? Passes on by. Maybe he had good reason. Maybe he was returning home from his responsibilities in Jerusalem. 
Maybe he was concerned about being ceremonially defiled and contaminated by a dead body. Maybe he was afraid that he himself would be beaten and robbed. The text doesn't say, and we must not speculate. The text does say, however, he just kept going. Another man came by. The text identifies him as a Levite. He was a part of the priestly establishment. And while he did not offer the priests like the sacrifice, like the high priest offered the sacrifices, he was involved in temple worship. He was a part of that, that priestly aristocracy that governed, worshipped, and led and participated in worship in Jerusalem. And the text says that he observed the man and he did what? Kept going. Maybe he had the same concerns. Maybe he was afraid of being defiled. Maybe he was afraid of getting involved. Maybe he was afraid that he too would be fallen upon and beaten and robbed. But he kept going. Third man in the parable comes by. The text identifies him as a Samaritan. Now, the man that poses these questions, the lawyer, is not a lawyer like we think of, like a health care lawyer, a prosecutor, a defense attorney. Um, not that kind of lawyer. A lawyer in the language of the New Testament is a man who specialized in the Scripture. He studied the Bible. He knew the Old Testament. He had committed large portions of the Old Testament to memory. When he poses this question to Jesus, what he would have expected is that another Jewish man would have been coming by and perhaps would have stopped to offer mercy. But Jesus said, it's not a Jewish man. It's a Samaritan. I cannot describe for you how deep the hatred and animosity was for a Jew toward a Samaritan. The Samaritans were the products of, of uh, marrying foreigners in the Old Testament during the Assyrian captivity and deportation. They were half-breeds, if you'll permit that term, as Jews understood them, and they loathed them. They despised them. And uh, the Samaritans hated Jews as well. Do you remember in Luke 9, Jesus is going to Jerusalem, and he's going to take a little detour, he's going through a Samaritan village. They wouldn't let him come through. Do you remember that the most profound lesson, I think, on worship in the New Testament was delivered to an adulterous woman who was a Samaritan in a Samaritan village? Oh, the mercy and compassion of our Savior who is the friend of sinners. And I'm glad He is the friend of sinners. It couldn't have been a worse jab at the self-righteous hypocrisy of this lawyer who poses these thinly veiled questions. It was a despised, despicable Samaritan who stopped and stooped to show mercy and compassion on this man who had been beaten, robbed, stripped, and left to die on the road to Jericho. Here's what it would be like. It would be like telling a story today in Jerusalem and making the hero of the story a Palestinian terrorist. How do you think that would go over? It would be like going to Ireland and telling a story and making the hero of the story an Irish Catholic and you're an Irish Protestant country. It would be like me telling you a story this evening and the hero of the story is Osama bin Laden. How would that go over? Do you know the leading proclaimer of the gospel in the New Testament was a religious terrorist by the name of Saul? 
the Osama bin Laden of his day? Could you imagine what it must have been like for Jerusalem to have picked up the morning press and read, Saul of Tarsus converted? They didn't believe it. They did not believe it. And when Jesus tells this story and he turns the dagger on this Samaritan, the lawyer would have recalled with animosity that the hero of the story is a despised Samaritan. When they prayed in the temple, they thanked God that they weren't Samaritans. When they prayed in the temple, they invoked imprecatory psalms over Samaritans that God would smite them and use them for firewood and hell to make it even hotter. They hated Samaritans. But the hero of the story is the man who showed mercy. You see, this parable reveals the character of mercy in a man who's despised and loathed in his day. Look at the character of mercy. He gets involved. He stops. He stoops. The Bible says that he pours in oil and wine. The wine would have been an antiseptic on those badly opened wounds from the man who perhaps was beaten nearly beyond recognition. The oil would have been poured in like a healing balm to soothe the wounds. He puts the man on his own mount, probably a donkey. He takes him on down to an inn, and he gives the innkeeper two denarii, two days' wages. But those two days' wages would have purchased a month's stay and time of recuperation in this inn. And he says to the innkeeper, I'll come back. And if more is owed, I will repay it. Listen, in this parable, Jesus tells all legalists, all who believe that somehow or another they've made themselves commendable to God, that we've received incredible mercy. And he demonstrates in this parable the kind of mercy that we've received, a mercy that's disproportionate, a mercy that is expensive, a mercy that is costly, a mercy that is abundant and overflows to meet and minister to all of our needs. But I think in this parable you also see a call to mercy for those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. How does the parable end? It, it ends in verse 37. Um, it, go back up to verse 36. Jesus poses the question, So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And verse 37, the lawyer said, he couldn't even say the Samaritan. He said, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Now you go and show mercy. See, it's hard for a legalist to show mercy. Nearly impossible. Because they think they've earned or merited their standing with God on some level. It's nearly impossible for those who imagine themselves to be self-made people who've worked hard all their life, I've earned everything that, that I have to show mercy to other people. That's one of the main points of the parable. What have you earned that God did not give you? What have you received that heaven did not pour out upon you? Well, the immediate answer ought to be obvious. Nothing. I haven't received anything that heaven hasn't given me. Dr. Young in our staff devotional time yesterday had us to read and then he expounded and we interacted over Ezekiel 16 about how God found Israel when, when she was wallowing in her own blood and, and, uh, and near death. And he 
said to Israel, Live. And he began to adorn Israel with every good gift and every grace and every mercy. And he supplied all of her needs. And such is it in our own lives as well. The character of mercy is disproportionate and out of bounds to all of our needs. I can assure you this evening there's not a single person here tonight who deserves mercy. You don't deserve it. Because if you did, it wouldn't be mercy. What we deserve is justice. What we deserve is a holy and just condemnation and wrath, unending wrath and damnation from a holy God. But He's poured out mercy upon us in Christ. When He says to the legalist, go and do likewise, He closes the door on His pretense of religion. You know, I'm a product of the church. My dad was a pastor. Been in church all my life. And I've seen some mean-spirited religion and some mean-spirited legalist. But when we discover our bankruptcy before heaven, mercy pours out of every pore of our being because we realize we have not received what we deserved. We've received what we did not deserve. And therefore, our hearts are moved are moved to abounding mercy and compassion. This is a call to mercy not only to the legalists in the first century, but listen, it's a call to mercy to every citizen of the kingdom of God even in this century. It's a clear call to mercy. He says to you and He says to me, go and do likewise. That's the message, I think, at the end of the parable is to go and do likewise. Because the call of kingdom mercy is not defined by categories. It's not defined by class. It's not defined by culture. Mercy is poured out in spite of and in the face of all of those other kinds of issues. This, I think, is an important value in the kingdom of God. Is that as citizens of the kingdom of God, we reflect the mercy of God. The lens of truth in this parable is turned back on us. What is our willingness to show mercy and compassion to those who are in need? We live in a world that's clearly marred by sin and misery. It's undeniable. Pick up the front page of the commercial appeal. Nearly every page screams sin and misery. And yet, we know it's a result of the fall. And yet, we also know that the Lord Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel is the remedy for every aspect of our fallenness. We're conceived in sin. We're shaped in iniquity. We are estranged from God at the very moment of birth. We're spiritually alienated from God. And what does God do? He pours out saving mercy upon us. He comes to us in convincing and converting power. And He brings us into fellowship with Himself through Christ. As a result of sin, we're even alienated from ourselves. We are fractured beings and fractured personalities. John Calvin and the Institutes of Christian Religion said our hearts are idol factories. We manufacture and worship and fall down before our own idols and only increase our misery as we seek to fill the vacuum and void that only God can fill. The gospel comes to fractured and broken people and offers wholeness and it offers healing. We live in a world in which there's alienation from others. It's within different cultures. It's in different classes of people. Sometimes it's within our own families. Sometimes it's even within the body of Christ. And the gospel comes 
and calls us to repentance and to offer the kind of mercy that God has so freely poured out upon us in Christ. We've been given the gospel of the kingdom. And beloved, it's a message of mercy. And it's a message of incredible grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, you have to look no further than Christ as the model for the message that He calls us to proclaim. Luke chapter 4, His ministry begins. He goes to Nazareth, His hometown. scroll of Isaiah is handed to Him on the Sabbath. And uh, He finds a text. I like that. Jesus unfurled that scroll and He found a text. And He stood up to read and He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon Me because He's anointed Me to preach the gospel to the poor, physically and spiritually poor, I believe. Potocost, people who are beggars, people who are destitute, helpless and hopeless. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to bind up the brokenhearted, to set at liberty those who are captive, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And I would submit to you this evening that that is the message that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has been called to continue to proclaim far and wide to spread it like seed, knowing that we're not responsible for the outcome. We can't manipulate or manufacture the results, but simply to be faithful to the message of saving mercy and saving grace. And we look to no less than the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I meant to say this, and I'm running close on time now, but I meant to say this last week. Jesus spends three and a half, four years of ministry doing phenomenal things. I mean, let's let's admit it. More miracles in one day probably than all of Old Testament history. And at the end of his ministry, in the upper room, he has 12 people, one of whom betrays him. Now he's got 11. And when he's looking at the cross, the only disciple that he recognizes there is John. All had scattered and forsaken him. Now would you fault the message of Jesus? Could he have just used an... Another more catchy illustration, perhaps, and had greater impact? Did he need to water down the message so they could understand it better? And You know, if he had just changed that message, more people would have come to him. What about the rich young ruler? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, keep the commandments. Oh, I've done that. Well, go sell all you have and follow me. Jesus just applied the first commandment to him, have no other gods before me. He had many gods because he had much stuff. And the rich young ruler was sorrowful. I love what Mark chapter 10's version says. It says the rich young ruler was sorrowful. And Jesus looked at him like I'm looking at shame. He looked at him. And Mark 10 says, and he loved him. He loved him. And as he turned to walk away, Jesus did not water down the call to conversion. See, the fault, the problem, I believe, with evangelicalism today is not found in the message. It's not even found in the method. It's found in what is always the problem. The heart of the problem is always the heart. And just as good soil cannot make itself, or bad soil, rather, cannot make itself into good soil, so am I powerless to change my own heart. And if this legalist, this lawyer, had understood the full import of what Jesus was saying to him, he would have fallen before him and begged mercy from heaven. 
I cannot love God with all of my heart. I cannot love my neighbor. Oh, Jesus, have mercy upon me. And having received that mercy, he would have been liberated to have shown mercy to other people. Let me give you just a couple of miscellaneous thoughts and we'll quit and go home. This is a call to mercy, yes. It's a call to follow Jesus who was the friend of sinners and a merciful Savior as is evidenced tonight by your presence and your uplifted hands to the question, have you received mercy? Yes, you have. Incredible mercy. It's a call to that. It's a call to follow Jesus. But can I tell you something else this evening very quickly? There's a very real sense in which mercy is a test of your citizenship in the kingdom of God. Larry um, Kunkel had asked a question uh, this evening as we were getting started, and something about prison and, and, uh, and Paul going into prison and so on. We're not going to take time to turn over there, but I would refer you to this great passage in Matthew 25, starting in verse 31 and going through verse 46. It's a judgment day scene. Christ has come back and He's gathered the nations before Him. And He poses a series of questions. Or actually, He makes a series of statements and then they counterpose questions. He says, I was sick and you didn't visit me. I was naked and you did not clothe me. I was hungry and you did not feed me. I thirsted. And you did not give me anything to drink. And they said, when? And he says, if you've done it unto the one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. See, the idea there is not visiting prisoners in order to be right with God, to get right with God. The idea there is not feeding the hungry so that you can achieve righteousness. The idea there is not clothing the naked so that you somehow can achieve an acceptable status before the court of heaven. No, the point there is that the fruit of our lives will be evidenced by a merciful orientation in the face of lost and fallen people whose needs are legion. We give mercy. Because we've received it. We give mercy. Because we've received it. And such is a value of the kingdom of God. That having received mercy. We're called now to go and do likewise. To extend mercy. In the name of the king. Of whose kingdom. There is no end who rules and reigns upon a throne of grace and mercy to all who come to Him in faith and repentance. Father, as we close in prayer this evening, may we feel the sting of the tale of this parable. May it expose um, our tendency towards self-justification and self-righteousness a sin from which we all are prone uh, to struggle with from time to time. May it show us afresh the mercy of a greater Samaritan, the Lord Jesus. For He came when we were dead in trespasses and sins, when we walked according to the course of this world, when we served 
gods who are by nature not gods, when we were subject to the wrath to come, He came and made us alive according to His great mercy and great grace. May we see in this parable that greater Samaritan who has saved us by His mercy. And may we see in this parable a call to go and do likewise, that is, to show the mercy of the kingdom to whomever we meet, to whomever is in need, and to do so in the name of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.